So um, I hit record on the recorder, so that means class is starting. And first, I'm going to let uh, Raleigh say a few words of welcome and housekeeping and whatever, and then we're going to learn. Okay. Welcome, everyone. I'm Raleigh Cohn, the director of the Florence Mountain School, and there's Merle Tovian over there. She's now my assistant director. So we're both Bethel people. Ah, it's wonderful. So we're thrilled to have you join class. We're, last year we had almost 300 students in our school, and we're really honored to have Rabbi Schwab teaching the second part of Shemot 2. It's a very interactive class. You get a beautiful book that's developed uh, by scholars at Hebrew University. And don't worry, if you can't make a class, we tape every class. And we're going to teach you, we're going to send you an email on how to listen to it on course sites on this platform online. It's not difficult. So without further ado, you're very lucky to have this wonderful teacher, as you know, and we're so glad you came back. Thank you. It's mm -hmm. fun. I mean, yeah. we're all Bethel folks uh, oh, for oh, the most part. We do kosher snacks every time. If you'd like to we sign do. up to bring a little, yes, we have some snacks we're going to pass around. If you want to bring that. snacks, we'll pass this around, and it makes, you know, it helps give you energy to learn. So, two quick other housekeeping things. Um, don't be surprised next class when there's a bunch more people who are going to be here. There's a men's club steak and scotch night where three or four of our other registrants are still hanging out. They may trickle in. And then we have a few other people who are just out of town and couldn't make the first class. Um, so, uh, you may have to, you know, if you're taking up a lot of room today, you may have to squeeze in a little bit next time. The other thing is I just want to make sure from the get-go that everybody got the correction email on the dates. There is no January date for this class. We are not meeting in January. Um, there was it's one that said the week of Thanksgiving that there's no class. There is class the week of Thanksgiving. That's the flip. So there, we're not running through January. We're just ending by winter break. And we are going to have class the Tuesday night before Thanksgiving. Um, I did that last year, and really, there's only like one person that was already out of town or something. Most people, two nights in advance of Thanksgiving. It's not Passover Seder, you know, so um, hopefully it's okay. So um, before we begin, be, begin, begin, um, I always do. I know you have name tags in front of you. Hi, Alicia. Um, I know you have name tags in front of you. But um, I, I always like to just uh, quick go around, and maybe we'll also do that a little bit next time for the newer people. And, and just, again, um, if, if in, in addition to saying your name, which is clear because it's printed out, um, if you could say something about yourself, if you want to say how long you've been a member of the congregation, or what your family, something for something to hang a fact on you about, so that we can enrich uh, getting to know each other a little bit better. Um, so for those who don't know, I'm from Philadelphia, by the way, and I'm a big Eagles fan, and they won their opener, and that was very exciting because they have a rookie quarterback who played superbly. So that's something little that you can know about me in addition to what you already know. Jay, do you mind uh, taking it away? Sure. Uh, Jay Perstowski. I have uh, southern roots, but moved to Chicago about 30 years ago, so this is home now. Married with four children between the ages of 17 and 23. And I'm uh, uh, a physician, but uh, stopped practicing, though I'm still working full time. Now I'm working for a healthcare consultant uh, in the area, so I travel a bit, but hopefully the schedule will work out to be here. And uh, that's enough. All right, Renee. Renee Klein. I've been a member here since this building was built. And I 
one daughter and two young grandchildren. Great, thank you. And Merotovian, if I don't know you already, I don't know why. I've been around this building a lot, but now I'm happy to be having Raleigh with Melvin classes. So, um, I'm Larry Pactor, I'm trying to get something. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the father of uh, the director of food service here at Bethel. That's my claim to fame. <laughs> He's busy with steak and scotch right now. Larry's very active on our leadership here, too. I'm Mary Channon, and I have lived in the Chicago area now for 10 years, and I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. So, um, and my claim to fame is my son Jack. If you don't know him yet, you will. He's three, and he says hi to everybody, and he's <laughs> just life of the party. So. Great. <laughs> hi, Susan Sacknell, Frankenstein. My father was one of the first members in 51, and um, that's how long I've been here. People married and buried my family here, and um, I'm a widow, and I have five grandchildren. I live in Redcom. Thank you. Well, see, I used to like to say that I've been here since I was seven, but she was here since she was six, so she grew up. You were I'm Renee Kahn, and I teach here in preschool, and uh, I have two children and two grandchildren. I'm Perry Granoff. I'm, I'm actually an associate member of Bethel. I'm, I'm well, actually, forgive me. Yeah, huh? but, but that can change. Life, things change in life. Um, Is that no golf? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> don't know, I, I don't know. I, 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 it, I, it definitely has an impact on the holidays. I have. <laughs> okay, but um, I, I, I'm a member of, of North Shore. Um, I have three girls. All three of my girls are um, are well. Two of them are are soldiers in the IDF, and one is is just left for uh, Israel in July, and she's going through her um, acclimation to join her two sisters. Yeah. Uh, my name is Ron Hahami. We moved here from Atlanta about uh, seven years ago. I've got two 15-year-old kids that have been bar mitzvahed here uh, a couple years ago, and uh, this is my first uh, adult class. Uh, looking forward to it. Fantastic! Oh, perfect timing. It's the Halfins. We were just uh, doing introductions. So Beth and Simon, I hate to put you on the spot, but as soon as you sit down, if you could introduce yourselves and say some sort of fact about yourselves, people have either shared about their family or how long they've been at Bethel or something like that. Or if you're from the south, yeah, we have a theme here. There's a, there's a bunch of you're either a southerner or you were here at Bethel for like the last 300 years. So it's one of the two. Right, and it's you and me. Yeah, and it's you and me. We're in between. So Simon Halpin, uh, probably. And he's not south. Yeah, he's not a southerner. South of something. South London. South of the Wolf of Gap. So I'm uh, I'm originally from London. I've lived in the states for about 23 years now. So. Fairly acclimatized. Um, <laughs> he understands the accent. I understand the accent. Most of them. Uh, we've been members since 03. I don't even know. Since 03. We were unchairman in the city before then. We have three kids. The youngest is going to have her bat mitzvah next month. So, yeah, it's uh, good stuff. Very exciting. Very exciting. So, um, for those of you who have taken a class with me before, I think that you've gotten this from me. I love teaching. And I love learning, and I particularly uh, love Torah study. 
Um, and one of the intriguing things that a Melton course offers is, is that it's Torah study, but also um, the scholars who put together the Melton course have compiled an amazing array of commentary um, and other resources to help even a rabbi or other type of scholar of the Torah. I haven't seen some of these things even before I prepared for this course. So some of the classic stuff, of course, I've probably come across, um, but there's also working in of modern commentary as, as well. Um, what's always a struggle, just to let you know what I struggle with as a teacher, is there's a, a wealth of resources in this book, um, well beyond what we would ever conceive of covering in class. Um, however, I invite you, since you have your own book, right, that... Um, if you want to study the material in advance each week, and you want to go through the sources yourself, even all of them, even if we don't cover them, that can only enrich your knowledge and love of Torah, right? So um, the sources are wonderful on their own, even without the help of a rabbi or your classmates to unpack them. And it might even deepen your, your understanding of the sources we do cover. So if you find yourself with the time, you're certainly welcome to use your source book at home and to prepare for class, um, but you don't have to. If you don't, it's no big deal. I always assume that nobody read anything. Uh, and, that, and then that's okay. I mean, because it's, it's, it would be like supplementary and extra credit if you did. Um, but last year, people, a couple people mentioned that, you know, about dealing with certain types of sources, and I, 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 I would always encourage you to study as much as you can. Um, the other thing that we balance between is studying the Torah, quote-unquote, in its shot, like reading the Torah itself, and uh, looking at it through the lens of the source material. In order to really understand the source material, of course, we have to understand the original. So we're usually going to start each class by studying the actual Torah verses themselves, um, I do try to engage us in a little bit of Torah study um, before we actually look at it through somebody else's lens or through the lens of the sources. Um, and I like to engage you. I don't, this is not a lecture class, at least for me it's not. I don't know how other teachers no, do it. No but yeah, I don't like to just talk a lot. I, I do want you to engage and I do want to encourage you to debate with each other nicely, of course. You're all sweet, so it doesn't matter. To debate with each other, to say, hey, you know, I take it a different way. Just because I explain it, you can tell, Rabbi, you know, I don't really relate to your, what you're saying. Uh, I see it totally differently. That's all good, right? If somebody wants to relate it to a personal experience or something relevant in their life, great. Torah is supposed to be related to it. This isn't an information class. This is a Torah study class that's supposed to be if we can touch our souls, I'll be happy, right? I mean, that's part of what this is all about. It's that dynamic of trying to make Torah relevant and, and speak to us. So we can get into it, and we can also allow Torah to kind of come out into our lives. So there's a, multiple arrows going in all sorts of different directions. Um, and, and that's hopefully also we get to know each other as a learning community, and we learn how each other thinks and what's important to us, and that's another way that we grow closer um, as, a, as a community. So... Does anybody have any questions so far? So I'm more of like a dive-in guy. Maybe there's lots of other pre-activities one could do. But I would like, let's go to the text. Um, if you would open up to page 1, which is at the end of, there's a Roman numerals up through 10. And then there's like actually page 1, preparing for Revelation. Do you see that? 
So what I'd like to do, because it's a longer selection of verses, um, it, what I'd like to do is, I, 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 you know, if it's uncomfortable at first, I apologize. Um, but maybe in like a uh, little, you can either read it yourself a little bit first, or um, if you want to read in like Chavruta or groups or something like that, that's also very lovely. For the moment, I would actually like you, either in Chavruta or by yourself, to read from page one. I would like you to read the verses. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to do that, page one and two. It's 20 verses. And what I'd love for you to do, if you can either do this mentally or if you have a pen or a pencil, you can also underline, this is your book, there's nothing wrong with underlining the text. I'd like you to kind of think to yourself, what's interesting, intriguing, strange, you know, where are your questions about the text? Make a note to yourself if there's repeated words, you know, if there's a strange turn of phrase. These are all things the rabbis pick up on and good commentators like to delve into. Um, and so read, but also try to note as you're going along. And then I'm going to come back and we're going to study it together. So I'll give you a few minutes and you can choose whether you want to study by yourself or read aloud with somebody else. So I'm going to give you a few minutes. Okay, go. God is speaking. I think it's out there. I think it's the security guard. The window's open. Yeah. Oh, they can't get in. All right, get in. Oh, no. The office? Yeah, I've got a key, but I need to get in the front door. Should I open this door here? I guess. I don't know if this is Excuse me. Sometimes the text will be short enough that we'll just read out loud together, but this one is long. goes all the way through verse 25. I, forget, I always forget that my pa pagination is different than yours, which is why I have this book here. Thank you.
I know this won't be enough for some of you, but I'm going to give you like another minute or so, and wherever you are, you are, and that's cool. I'm just trying to balance between making sure you're familiar with the text and not spending too much time in private meditations. Alright, if you could finish your thought or the sentence that you're glancing over or whatever you're notating um, and then not to be too student teacher like and then look up at me when you're done so I know that you're with me um, that would be really helpful just so I know that everybody's on board okay looks like we're on board alright so let's go back to the beginning of the text um, and we'll, we'll take it section by section I, want, I do want to read aloud again and then I want to ask you what you thought, at least of that section. And just for the sake of timing and, you know, my energy level's high, I'm going to read dramatically. Um, and and uh, I'll stop at a certain point, and I want, I want you to tell me what, what you came up with, what was interesting to you. So on the third new moon after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt, on that very day they entered the wilderness of Sinai. Having journeyed from Riphidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. Israel encamped there in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God. The Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and declare to the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Indeed, all the earth is mine. But you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. All right, first pause is there. What in the first six verses either struck you as either interesting or that you had a question about or something that you may have underlined for some reason or, or another? Anybody have any pauses along the way? Larry? Well, I had a few, but the one that probably struck out the most is verse 5 that um, the big if mm -hmm. that, yeah. that, that if you obey me yeah. then you shall be my treasured possession on some other people's and what struck you about that why was that important to you the if well it's conditional mm -hmm. it's not an absolute for all time unconditional um, love and, and the relationship is very much con a conditional one the promise is conditional one. does that contrast at all with you with what you had previously kind of assumed about the covenants or something like that, or is that something that you expected to see? Well, I mean, you know, I know you know Torah reading. Yeah, stuff, I'm, but familiar, I'm familiar with some of the some of the expressions of the covenants, and they're, they're different in different places. Right. So I, I just I hadn't, hadn't really focused on this though. To, to, I wasn't sure what I was going to see. Good. Okay. Anybody else? Either comment to that or different. Go ahead, Renee. Um, well, I agree with Larry. I don't love that it's conditional, but it's kind of not up to me. <laughs> no, but I love the part that says, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to me. So I think what God is saying is, I loved you and I saved you and I cared for you. Now do your part. So I found it kind on that level. Very nice. And what kind of image is bearing on eagle's wings? 
It's a, is it, do you feel like, is it a royal yeah, image? Like, yeah. like a child. A child yeah. image, yeah. a comforting and nurturing image, very nice. I mean, I always found it to be also like kind of dramatic. It's kind of cool to fly on eagle's wings, you know? It's like eagles are powerful and big, and it's very un- majestic. Un- majestic and, uh, and, but also, eagles are very, they're nurturing, right? Yeah, it's very protective. Like an eagle's going to protect you. Very nice. But it doesn't seem to sort of tie with when the Israelites left Egypt. It wasn't this sort of majestic exodus. Scramble to get out. Very nice. So, what is the? How does the poetry of the image bearing on eagle's wings uh, bear? You know, how does it match or square up with uh, what actually happens? Um, and what kind of is this kind of a revisionist type of history? Um, what's behind that expression? It's very nice. I mean, we can either answer these questions or just leave them out there. Anybody else want to comment on any of that or have their own? Yes. Yeah. Um, what well, I, I just noticed the first verse, you know, two things. First of all, it's the new moon, so it's really a new start. Mm-hmm. Um, but three months to get to the wilderness, it yeah. seems like a really long time to make. Very nice. Very so the rabbis actually pick up on that one, and uh, that's one of the ones we're going to start with. The question of why is this happening on the third new moon? Meaning, like, they left Egypt... Why are they not getting to the mountain? It doesn't say something specific, like wherever they were going to be, why are they getting the Torah now, like three months later? Why didn't they just get it like as soon as they crossed over the sea or something like that? What's, what's going on here? Um, or why didn't they get it the day they left? I mean, or maybe you have a question of why aren't they, why aren't, isn't God waiting longer? Um, but but what, what's with the third month? Well, just to add to, to the to the uh, observation post, shouldn't have been the seventh week. What do you mean? Well, the Exodus, seven weeks from the Exodus. Oh, oh, I see what you mean, for, for Shavuot? Yeah. Right, that's um, correct. And then I will say it like this, you're fitting biblical history mm-hmm. into the rabbinic holiday system that was actually grafted on top of the history. So, but it's a good point, you know, but... Um, you know, how does this square with, you know, the Shavuot and the Exodus kind of story in terms of the timing, right? Right. right. So this is on the third moon after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt. The third moon could be at the, com- it's the completion essentially of two months, which is roughly around seven or eight weeks, you know. So we're in the ballpark. I don't want anybody to think we're like so far away. Um, and it depends on where you start leaving Egypt and where they started counting like for the holiday, Passover, and the Exodus. So we're in the same ballpark, but it might not match up 100%. Okay. But the holiday, the, the grafting of uh, celebrating the revelation of the Torah onto Shavuot, by the way, just so you know for your own knowledge, comes way later. Shavuot is not mentioned in the Torah as in relationship at all to Revelation, um, even though by counting from Passover... With the Omer, you'd think, oh, well, something big must have happened that day. But the Torah doesn't actually say that, right? The Torah celebrates it as an agricultural holiday. Um, pretty much, that's it. Um, and and, and what, 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 the, what allows the rabbis this interpretation is, is that you count from Passover X amount of days, which is around when they got the Torah, and the rabbis are like, well, we don't really have a holiday that celebrates Revelation, so... As a pilgrimage festival, it has to fit into that narrative, and they, they kind of added that on. So, just an interesting historical fact. So, great. So you notice the third moon that the Israelites... Anybody else? Yeah, Ron. I mean, 
this may be too picky, but for some reason I underlined the phrase on that very day because I thought that was repetitive. It said on the on the third new moon, and it seemed like that was a very distinct uh, time period and, and almost pinpointed exactly, but for them to say on that very day, it was if they were saying the first day of the week and on, you know, on Sunday. Right, so because you don't actually need the phrase on that very day, then the assumption, and that's a very rabbinic assumption, in a good way, I mean that as a compliment, that it means something special or distinct. It's going to come to tell us something more, um, whether it be emphasis, right, drama, um, or whether it tells us something very substantive that's beyond the dates. Um, that's a really good point. Okay. Larry? The other one I noted was that wilderness is, yes. is, appears three times in the first two sentences, and it seems to be, you know, as you read down, it becomes pretty important that that's, yeah. you know, there may be a lot of reasons why they're in the wilderness, but the wilderness was mentioned three times. Great. And that's another thing that I'm telling you we're going to pick up on as the Milton curriculum picks up on. Um, the concept of wilderness, because not only is it repeated, but it's almost unnecessarily repeated. It's like, they tell it, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. They entered the wilderness of Sinai. It's the same phrase, like in verse 1 and verse 2, right? Um, so, and then they, they camped, encamped in the wilderness. Well, we know. You just told us twice that they're in the wilderness. So it's like, there's a serious emphasis on the wilderness that if you're a, a very clean writer, you know, you wouldn't have written it this way. So the rabbis, you know, I say, if you give uh, Shakespeare credit for being very purposeful in his writing, you should surely give God some credit too, that there's, that, that there's a reason um, for it. And the rabbis definitely are going to look at this and be like, what's the big deal about the wilderness? You know, why do they keep repeating the wilderness? Why is that the premise for the Torah? Um, and so that's something to keep in mind is we're, we're going we're gonna to study too. Probably wrong. <laughs> now, the thing they keep saying wilderness, maybe it's just to show that they were wandering in nothingness. And maybe the three months has to do with the time to just wander to purge themselves of the slave mentality. Wonderful. So one of the things that the rabbis want to do is they want to understand why the text is written exactly the way the text is written. And often, and one of the beautiful things, in my opinion, about our Jewish tradition is, is that this is what gives us a rich layer of layers of meaning, is, is that it's kind of like more like art to me. You know, you, you can kind of, you can overlay lots of different things, and you can either believe very mystically that God intended all of these, like, hundreds of thousands of interpretations, um, and that's wonderful, or you can just see it as the way that we interact with our sacred text, that keeps the text relevant and meaningful in each generation because, you know, that, that, that type of interpretation that you get appeals to you in terms of understanding the process by which the Israelites are making a transition from being a generation of slaves. And you see this as almost the wilderness allows them to prepare for receiving the Torah. If they had gotten it right after they came out, right, they wouldn't have been ready to be in this covenant, right, or this if covenant because... If? What do you mean if? I'm a slave. You know, it's, the rules are this way. I'm either, uh, there's no if. I don't have any choices here. What does it mean to be in a free covenant? Shake my hand. You know, are you ready for this? Yes, okay, I'm in. You know, they don't know from that. So maybe they need it this time. Um, maybe that's a way of understanding it. It's fantastic. All right, I'm going to read a little bit further. I'm not going to read the whole way through. And then I want to study the first two. So, and we'll balance between, because... The text is very long. The, the, the biblical text that they give us itself is very long. Um, and I want to make sure at least we do some of the sources because I think they're really interesting. Um, 
So we're on verse 7. So we, what we didn't talk about that much, I, I hope that you noted it and thought it was interesting, but there's this whole thing about, okay, um, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? That's a very famous line, and we're going to, God willing, come back to that. And also this whole idea of that Moses is going up to God, and the Lord is calling to him from the mountain. So I want you to picture it and keep in mind where God is, quote-unquote, and where Moses is, quote-unquote, in this conversation. So Moses came and summoned the elders of the people and put before them all that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered as one, saying, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the people's words to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. Then Moses reported the people's words to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes, let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people on Mount Sinai. You shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, Beware of going up the mountain or touching the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be either stoned or shot. Beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up to the mountain. I'm going to read one more verse, even though it seems like I'm stopping in the middle. Moses came down from the mountain to the people and warned the people to stay pure, and they washed their clothes. Okay. What? Did, one more layer here of, did you notice anything that you want to point out? Yeah. Well, there's one verse that doesn't fit. Um, Which is that? Verse 9. Verse 9. Tell me why. Because... Um, Indeed, he, Lord, Lord God, speaks to Moses, but this is a little bit of foreshadowing, but it's not clear at all that the people hear anything that happens between God and Moses. Mm -hmm. There is the cloud, there is thunder, there is a lot going on that they do witness, but in terms of what happens between the two of them, that's a private matter. So, it, it, although he says it here, it doesn't follow through as we go through the rest of the book. Got it. So I think what you're saying, and tell me if I'm wrong, is, is that a lot of the conversation that's happening here is between God and Moses. And it's unclear what the people are hearing from any of this. Is that what you're saying? Precisely. And, and, um, but it seems to be saying that God wants to address and appear to the people. Is that what you're saying? And that he wants the people to hear what he's when saying. he speak with you so that they'll trust you ever after. Right. But that doesn't, if I, as I understand it, doesn't eventually occur. Well, we didn't get to that part um, where God actually does come down. We'll have to wait. It's a cliffhanger for you. Um, so I will, let, I will let you be the judge of whether, whether God does speak so that the people hear or not. I'll just foreshadow a little bit, give you, there's a debate about that, about what God actually says and what the people hear, quote, unquote, from God's mouth, Right? Um, but what you're pointing out here is that God presents um, uh, an intentionality to speak in a way that all the people can hear, um, but thus far has basically kept a private doing this parlay thing. And Moses, you tell the people that, and Moses comes back, okay, uh, this is what the people said. He's like running back and forth, like shuttling the communications back and forth. 
and there, we know that there's a cloud intervening, there's going to be loud thunder and horns and all sorts of stuff, so there's a lot of other things going on. So the, uh, the direct communication between God and the people is at least questionable at this moment. Is that fair? Fair. Okay, great. It's a great observation. Anybody else? Yes? Yeah, just going back to the first verse, you know, we had three months of wandering in the wilderness, and now we have three days of preparation to the God. Great, so there's a three, three theme. Yeah. Fantastic. Ronnie, all right. Susan, you want to say something? I don't, it's so threatening. Don't do this. Don't do that. <laughs> that, that part, yeah, it is, isn't it? Why? What does the threat mean to you? Yeah. What is, what is with all this warning? It does change a little bit of tone. Like, first it's very nice and dramatic. Like, I bore you on eagle's wings, and I want to speak to you, and I'm going to come down from the mountain, and you're going to come up, and it all, you're going to be in a covenant with each other. And then all of a sudden it's like, Tell them to purify themselves. Tell them not to come closer. If they do, they're going to die. What's going on here? Does anybody have a thought? Boundaries. So there's boundaries. And it even actually speaks the, using the word boundary, right? Um, so there's, there's a set, you shall set the bounds for the people around about if they're looking in the Hebrew also. You'd see it. Um, which, if we had time for that too. I don't, I don't even know how the Melton people thought we could fit all this in one. I mean, it's like crazy. It's a huge text. There's all this source material. But um, anyway, um, yes, there's, there's boundary making. And it seems like, it seems like, and I want you to think about this, it seems like conversation with God, let's just put it this way, is not to be taken lightly. There's danger here, right? There's a danger here. And, and the danger isn't a bad danger because God is a mean man. He's going to, like, you know, hurt you. It's, it's like inherent danger. Often the analogy is often made because how does God appear? And I don't know if we're going to get to these sources or not. So, you know, I'll, I'll show a little my hand a little bit, or Melton's hand. Um, how does God appear, usually? In fire, right? The first thing he appears to Moses, which is the prelude to this story, is what? He's in fire. What is fire? Yeah, the snet in the bush, but the bush is on fire. And what, what is fire? Fire is great. We need fire. Fire warms things. Fire lights things. It's what helped us become civilization. But it's like, it can be dangerous. And there's a source that really articulates it, and I don't know if we're going to get to it, but when you, and I just did this with my kids this summer when we went camping, um, like real camping, like out in the wilderness for real, you know, no car next to us. Um, and and, and, and we, you, you make a campfire, right? There's that perfect distance you need from it, right? Because if you get too close, it's like really hot, right? But, you know, it gets cold that night when you go camping. And so if you get too far, you're like, oof. You know, and then you got to find that balance in between where you're not getting burned, but you're enjoying the fire and getting the warmth from the fire and the resource from the fire. And I think this is one of those analogies that's often helpful to start to access a text like this. God is kind of saying, like, a paranoid parent, like, look, you know, if you if you go on that train track, I mean, that's really, really, you should... They're, they're, you should not do that, right? And they're overly protective. The only pro- I, and I, I totally understand that. I get that, but on line 13, yes. it sounds as though there's a punishment for touching. And right. it's, not, it's not as though the power of God will yeah. cause you to die. It's rather stoned you'll be shot. stoned or shot. Your, so, parents, your parents don't say, don't go on the railroad track or Albert, you should yeah. be. Right. So the parents don't say, don't go on the railroad track or I'll shoot you. But they might say, if you go X close to it, you know, there might be a consequence for that. Yeah. And so the possibility here is, is that 
if they cross border number one, that's not like automatic, like they're going to get consumed in God's fire. But they're setting a boundary further back, like don't even go this far, because if you go this far, there's a consequence, because that's right before you actually get hurt. We do this all the time. We set fences around things. We do it in law, do it all the time. So, but clearly, this, uh, there's an attitudinal change in the text, um, and it, it, it does promote this idea that there's a little bit of danger when dealing with God. Yeah. Well, could he just be testing them too? Because he gave a conditional love, you know, if you obey me, and they said, oh, we'll do everything we will do. We will do. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. Could he just be making some, like, just random? Could be, right? You know, if, if, we, if we're about to seal a covenant, he wants to know, are you going to actually follow my rules? Right? This is the first one I'm giving you. Are you going to listen to me? I told you to purify yourselves, which is another whole thing. What does that mean? But I told you to purify yourselves, and I told you, stay here, don't go there. If the first time he gives that command, they're already rushing the borders and pushing it. All right, guys, I'm going home. <laughs> this, 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 this contract ain't going ain't gonna to fly. You guys are not trustworthy. Maybe, maybe that does have something to do with it. Larry? Well, it's also, throughout this, it's, you know, we're talking about you know, this omniscient God that, that we can neither see, touch, or feel, you know, or hear. And then the, the verbs of people may hear me when I speak. The sight of it will be, in, I'll be in the sight of all the people. You know, and, and talk about touching, touch him, go up and touch. So it's, there's all these sensory images, and yet there's nothing. There really, it's when you step back, so well, you, you can't hear, and you can't see, and you can't touch. Interesting. The other way, I love that you said that. I'm going to think about that actually more, um, about the, the irony of that, you know, which is kind of, Jay, you were alluding to this a little bit um, too, which is, is that it implies that you're going to see, touch, and hear, and then in reality, all of those things kind of get clouded. Um, literally. literally. Um, li- no, literally. Uh, um, but, I, or you could look at it this way, which is um, there are certain things that, it, just again with the fire analogy, there are certain ways in which we sense God, and there are certain ways that we don't, right? And that's part of what, what I think the children of Israel are learning here, right? Is like, Whatever touch signifies, just for a moment, just follow me as an exercise in your brain. You can't touch God. Don't try it. It's, it's not going to work. You can't touch God. Maybe that it's dangerous, maybe that's not, but you can't. You can only hear God or sense God, right? Because at least now he's claiming that they're going to hear him. You can't touch, but you can hear. You can't see me exactly, but I will come down in the mountain in some form. So we're getting a sense that there are ways that we sense God as human beings, but there are limitations to our ability to sense God. God is not as tangible as another human being or a mountain, you know, or a tree. Um, it's, it's God, the relationship with God is going to be different. And we're, we're setting that up, the scene that this relationship with God is a real relationship. It's a covenant. We make a deal. There is some sort of real relation. I'm going to show up and you're going to show up. We're going to say things to each other, at least through somebody else, but we're, it's, it's a real relationship, but it's different than any other relationship you've ever been in before. Yeah. So I'm not sure this is the right time for this question. It's always the right time. But <laughs> Unless I tell you no. And I'm coming, yeah. in, and I'm coming in, and you know, I haven't been to the first three sections, but are we taking it for granted or not taking it for granted or leaving open who the author of all of these words and verses are? So, that's a great question. 
I, my philosophy when I teach Torah is to just take for granted whether you call it God or Moses, um, which are two traditional ways of understanding who the words of the Torah are, or some sort of master editor or a team of master editors, um, by the time the Torah becomes the Torah, it, it's, a, it's a document in, unto itself. There is a, there's a documentary hypothesis that there are different authors, but somebody edited it all together into one. It's presenting itself as a book, right? It's presenting itself as one piece. It may be significant to you whether that author is human um, or whether that author is God or some theological understanding in between where God is presenting revelation and we are writing it down so you know, I'm going to say things tonight, and you're going to say, Rabbi Schwab said, but if I heard you say what Rabbi Schwab said, I might be like, did I say that? You know, because we're, we don't hear, and you know, it's, so, and we are going to deal with some of that because some of what we're, this course is on, is on revelation. is on who said what, and whose words are these, um, and how are we supposed to understand the Torah? Did I answer that at all? Almost. <laughs> so, the reason I ask the question is, as we read the text and critique the text, if we, if our supposition is that it's a single author, then inconsistencies will appear uh, more difficult to grapple with or struggle. On the Correct. other hand, if we appreciate, I'm not questioning Revelation or that there was an event, that's another story. But if there are multiple authors, for example, who are working in a hybrid fashion, all giving their version of the events, then it's entirely acceptable that there may be some inconsistencies we need to look at the text, if you will, at a higher level. Correct. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yes, and, and there, are, there are wonderful hypotheses about multiple authors, which I, I learned in rabbinical school. And one of the ways you can look at it is um, when you see some of these inconsistencies, it's like um, one of the, my teachers, my professor said, it's like, you know, when you're um, closely examining a garment and you can see where the, the seam is or the sewing marks are, and it gives you a sense of like how it was put together, and if you're interested in that, it's actually fascinating. It doesn't take away from the beauty of it. You're like, oh, that's, I, I see how they did that. See how they put that together. Um, my only point is, so yes, we can certainly look at it that way, and multiple authorship often is a good way to explain why there's repetition or why the story's a little bit different in this one and that one, and that's great. However, I like to just also look at it as, but there was, whether it was human or not, there was an editor at some point, who decided, they, they, look, they looked at the document, they read it through, and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, that, even, even with its inconsistency. So it's, it's definitely more explainable when there's an editor of multiple authors why there might be mistakes or inconsistencies or whatever it is, um, but still, it was presented at some point by, whether it's an editorial board or a single person or whoever, as this is our document, right? And we, we're, it's supposed to be read, as a whole, seamless or seamful, I don't know, but it's, it's supposed to be read that way. So one of the ways at least to try to read it is with the brain of, read it as a, as a document, a single one, and then also with the, well, maybe this is one of those seams, right? Maybe this is where we see the repetition. But, um, and, and sometimes seeing it as multiple authors helps you just, oh, that, that's not that important because... We know that this, this author wrote it, and that author wrote it, and that's why they consist these. Let's look at the higher meaning. And sometimes reading it as one document helps us actually delve into because 
we, instead of just explaining those things away by that was one author, that was one author, we have a beautiful rabbinic midrash that explains it differently. Um, and that also gives us a further insight into the text. I don't know if that helped. But speaking of midrash, I would love to now turn into the, to the source material. Um, uh, and we're going to take a break from the text because of the lateness of the hour. And I do want to use Melton's amazing sources here. And I'd love to just, we're going to go in order for the first two, time allowing. Um, with Psikta Darav Kahana, as you can see, it's a, they call it homiletic midrash. It's like a mini sermon. Um, and uh, yeah, so would anybody care to read commentary number one on page six? Um, Psikta Darav Kahana starting in the third month. Actually, Beth, will you read it? Because this is your this is your big thing. This is your in the third month. Why in the third month? In order not to give the nations of the earth a chance to claim, had he given the Torah to even to us, um, we would have kept it. Said the Holy One, blessed is he to them. Take note in what month I gave the Torah. In the third month, under the zodiacal sign of twins, by way of indicating thereby that if wicked Esau would seek to convert, to repent, and to come study Torah, let him come and study, and I will accept him. Therefore, it was given in the third month. That is the answer you expected, right? That's right. <laughs> it's the obvious answer. It's the obvious answer. Right? All right. So, first of all, I think and I imagine that you were like reading, oh, that's a good question. Beth asked that question too, right? And then you were like, okay, waiting for an answer that... I don't know, it made sense to you, right? You were like hoping for, oh, the third. Right. So, and then it's like, whoa, what are they talking about, right? What are the rabbis talking about? So let's, th- this is first of all an example of how the rabbis are noticing some of the things that we notice, and they're giving an answer, right, that is not shot at all. It is not the contextual meaning, right? That's not the obvious or a reason's meaning from the context of the text. Rather, it is a um, creative understanding of the text to address an issue that they have overall with the meaning of what's happening in terms of the giving of the Torah. So my question to you, and this is me being a little bit more professorial and pushing you, is what is the rabbi's concern here? Why are they going in this direction and giving this answer? What's really behind their question of why is it given in the third month, right? Well, why, why is the Torah being given to the Israelites instead of someone else? Great, so one way of phrasing that, and there are different ways of phrasing this question, is why is the Torah being given to the Israelites? Because there are lots of other nations, right? So we take it for granted because we read backwards and because we love being Jews, right? That, yeah, the Torah was given to us. Of course it was given to us. I mean, we know that it happened and, hey, where were the Jews? But no, what if you read it forward? Is it so obvious, right? It doesn't say this here, but in other places, it mentions, like, the Jews. We were just this garbage enslaved people. We were these tribal nomadic family of some wealth, but not sophistication, who had a brief golden age when Joseph was the vizier of Egypt, immediately to be enslaved thereafter for the last several hundred years. So what's so great about us? Nothing, right? So why was the Torah being given to us? But there, are, there, there could be caveats or nuances to that question, or it could be phrased a little differently. Does anybody else have a way of phrasing what's, uh, what's behind with the rabbis? Uh, what, what, why are they asking this question? Anybody else? 
All right, so let's do a close read. Read with me for a second. I want to go back into it and open up some things, either for my insights or your insights, but I think it's cool. Um, why in the third month? Okay? In order not to give the nations of the earth the chance to claim. Why in the third month? It has nothing to do with the Israelites. So Renee's beautiful explanation is a great um, other, and there are other explanations, Renee. So you are in great company with other rabbis. Renee's explanation would be, you know, um, Hillel. This comes as like the Shammai. It's a different thing. It has nothing to do with the Israelites. Nothing. It doesn't have to do with their state of readiness. It doesn't have to do with preparation time. It has nothing to do with the Israelites. The actual, the reason that they had to wait until the third month to give two full months after the Exodus has to do with the other nations. Now, this should strike you perhaps as bizarre. Why should it strike you as bizarre? Because the focus of the text in the shot, in the reading of the text itself, is on us. Zambanesra is a very internal text. It's all about the Israelites, right? And all of a sudden, the rabbis, instead of saying this has anything to do with the Israelites, it's taking a broader view of the world in the giving of the Torah to the Jews, it's choosing to take a broader um, view of the world and saying, hey, there's a reason it has to do with the people who are not B'nai Israel, right? Why? Because they might, we want to make sure that people shouldn't claim that. Had he given the Torah even to us, we would have kept it. Meaning that if the people around didn't have a choice, right? Like the day after the, you know, the exodus, God came to the Israelites and said, here's your Torah. Everyone could say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, why, why, you know, you didn't even give us a chance, right, to get in on this thing, right? Um, but because there was some time in between, and the Exodus was this big deal, and there was an Arab Rob, there were a group that followed them out, right? There was an opportunity for people to, to kind of turn towards God and to ask for the Torah, but they didn't, Right? So, said the Holy One, blessed be them, take note in what month I gave the Torah. Now they move on to a, a, a slightly different thing, but it highlights the main point. It highlights the main point. In the third month, under the zodiacal sign of twins. Now, why the third month? Why the threes? Because it relates to the zodiac. Now, first of all, I just want to point out about that. I think that's so fascinating. How many of you have been to Israel before? How many of you have been to some of the ancient synagogues in the north? You've seen the, the, the zodiac yeah. mosaic on the floor, yeah. right? A lot of people who don't know about it the first time, they're like, that's not very Jewish, right? Zodiac is supposed to be like the opposite, right? You know, it represented gods or, or you know, divine beings that are beyond, you know, a single monotheistic god. Well, let me tell you, the rabbis knew all about the zodiac. And the rabbis, um, congregants at the very least, still dabbled in Zodiac, right? It was important, important enough that it even made it into the major artwork of the synagogue sometimes. Um, and it's a little unclear as to what ancient theology really looked like. Did they really have this purest, like Maimonides-like monotheistic belief in a kind of intangible God who's a force in the universe, which is what probably most people believe, or it's inside of all of us, and which I do too, I'm not making fun of it. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful concept. 
I don't think that's probably what was going on back there in their own theology, certainly not back in the time of the Torah. Um, and so here we have the rabbis saying they know the Zodiac, right? And, and they know that the people who are hearing the sermon know the Zodiac. And they're saying, it's almost like if you were my audience back then, I was like, okay, everybody, what's the third month Zodiac, right? Everybody would say yeah. twins, right? They knew it. This was like common parlance. It's like if, if you see me on the high holidays and I mention the Cubs being in the playoffs or something like that, that's my way of connecting to everybody and saying, I know what you know. We're all on the same page. We, we talk the same language. What's the, the thing with the twins? By way of indicating thereby that if wicked Esau would seek to convert, to repent, and to study Torah, let him come and study, and I will accept him. And therefore was given in the third month. Go back to the, the verses itself. What does, and this the, this the Mountain Curriculum doesn't actually point out, but I want to point it out. What do they call, right, um, uh, the children of Israel? The house of Jacob. Jacob. Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. We are Jacob. The others, the other nations, are represented by Esau. And Esau's the worst of them, right? That even Esau, he's not really the worst if you look at the story, but in, in, in rabbinic parlance, he's the evil Esau. He's kind of the prototypical evil guy, right? Even if the evil Esau were to repent and come, would he be able to, to get Torah? Would he be able to accept it in? He sure would. He sure would. So what's the overall message of this text? What do you think the rabbi gave the sermon? Now you're at your dinner table, Shabbos dinner table, discussing what the rabbi said. You know, in Shoal, what did the rabbi say? What did he say? What's the message? What do you take home? What are you, what are you incorporating into your, your understanding now? Anyone? Say it again. The Torah was available to Esau too. All you had to do was accept his repentance. Okay. Well, it's still available to him. I mean, it's a tenuous situation. If we're not constantly worthy of Torah, maybe it will go to somebody else. Okay. So maybe it's a little bit of a tenuous situation. You also that it's it's ongoing. It's still available to Esau, right? It's not like a one-time thing. It doesn't seem to be saying, at least to me, and you can certainly disagree with me, it doesn't seem to be saying, hey, I offered it to you, Esau, and you said no, bye. It seems to be saying, at any point, if the Esau is of the world, right, wants to repent and come to Torah, great, great. But what do you, what do you take from that? What's behind all that? Do you have a, is there, is there a, a, a second layer behind it? So that's like the, 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 the top layer answer is that e even Esau could get the Torah. But what does that mean? Uh, in a sense, we were not chosen. Uh -huh. We chose. Okay. And anyone else could have chosen from day zero had they done. They had three months to do so. Uh -huh. But that's an open-ended invitation. They can still choose. Beautiful. There's, there's something about the chosen thing here. Because it's, there's a part... Right, we're starting to get into this thing. What is that? You're my treasured nation, right? In the stuff that we read, you're a kingdom of priests. You know, we start to get a little bit all these titles, and it's coming. It's in here, and it's in other places too, about being the chosen people and all that kind of stuff. But this midrash seems to flip it a little bit and say, "Well, yeah, but it's really about chosen means choosing, right? 
I, God may have chosen to reveal God's self to the people then and offer them the Torah at this moment, but it, it depends on our ability to choose. And guess what? This is not an exclusive invitation. We may have gotten, I don't know if it's the first invitation, or we may have gotten um, the, the invitation of the moment. Who knows? Maybe God, there's another midrash that said that God offered the Torah to multiple nations before us, right? So, but we were the first ones to say yes, at least, that, it's, that, that other nations are invited, right? It's not an exclusive invitation, which is clearly not the obvious reading from the verses itself. The rabbis had another layer. Yeah. You know, I don't like this. Uh, why don't you like it? I thought you might like it. Actually. It's, it's nice to the other nations. You like the nice thing. Yes, and I'm very liberal, and I want to be nice to the other nations. But I do think that in some sense we were not God's chosen people. Why would God have sent Moses to Egypt to save us and bring us? To All right, I'm going to leave Sorry. that question hanging. If you would like to answer it, folks, please do. I'm I'm going to let another source that we're going to read perhaps speak to it. So I won't give you my answer yet because I happen to agree with that source. So we share voices. Yeah. You know, as you read now um, the Varim, you know, Moses starts saying, you know, the only reason I'm, Moses is saying on behalf of God, the only reason I'm doing this is because of Abraham. It's, so it, it takes yeah. a different tract than what the, where, where the rabbis are headed. Because, I mean, it seems as though God developed this covenant with Abraham, at least according to Moses and Devarim, and, and, and that because of that covenant with Abraham, God is giving the Jewish people this land to... And, and Absolutely. Okay. There are competing, there yeah. are competing themes of, or strands of narrative here. Yeah. Right? We go back and forth between... Well, I'm only doing this, this is like when God's being, I'm only doing this really because I promised it to Abraham already, right? And this is like the opposite of the conditional, right? There really isn't an if in that scenario, because even if, even if we reject God's covenant, God made a promise to Abraham, we got what's called Skuda vote, we got the merit of the ancestors. So God can like say goodbye to us for a little while, but he always has to come back. Because that's the deal that God made, which is, yes, we were slaves in Egypt for several hundred years, but God, God sent Moses, right? He had to come back. So we're always back and forth. But then on the other hand, right, the rabbis, and I think rightly so, because the other strands, legitimate strands in the narrative, like this one that says if. It's very clear in the covenant here that it's an if, right? It's very conditional. It doesn't say anything about Abraham here. It doesn't say, all right, I'm giving you the Torah. It could have. It doesn't. It doesn't say I'm giving you the Torah because, you know, I made a deal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nope. It, it uses that one phrase here, the house of Jacob. That's the one veiled kind of perhaps nod to the covenant. But it doesn't say anything about the agreements that they made. It mentions no, nothing about Abraham. Um, nothing about promises, which it does in other places. And so we go back and forth because the covenant supplies for us the if covenant supplies for us the, the, the really important concept of, of free will. Um, and at the very least, what I'd like you to think about is, is that even if God promised it to Abraham and God can't leave us, which is what a lot of the Haftarot say that come in consolation, like even if God seems far, don't worry, he's never going to leave you. He made an eternal deal with you. He's not going to leave you. But 
the relationship is much better and closer when we do follow the covenant according to the biblical understanding. It's, we don't suffer through the period in Egypt and in exile. Ah, the men's club coming back. All right. We're going we're gonna to count on your uh, scotch-induced comments. Um, so, but, but we, don't, we don't have to endure... Right, the separation that we did, you know, if the, if we if we maintain a, a close knit covenant. Um, I'm looking at the time. I would like to just have you think about, to me, it, I'll just say it to me, and obviously to others, including the Melton folks. This is a very, it's it's kind of a radical text, because at a moment when we're supposed to be thinking about ourselves, B'nai Israel, the rabbis turn it outward, and I would like you to think about why they turn it outward. Right? What's the purpose of making a sermon? Because you know, they're speaking to their contemporaries. They're talking you know, in the you know, second or third century or something like that to their folks or whatever, and they're making the sermon. You know, by the way, who's Esau at the time of the you know, first and second century? The Romans. And by the way, the rabbis make that analogy explicit. When they say Esau, they mean Romans, literally. Like, so if I was speaking to you and I was a first century rabbi and you were my congregants and I was giving a sermon about Asab, you knew I meant the Romans, literally. The people outside the door who were persecuting us and not letting us worship, that was our code word. When I say Asab, you say Romans. Asab, Romans. Okay, fine. So that's how that was the code word. So here, it's, this is not by accident. This is even more radical to say, you know those Romans standing outside? If they want Torah, even they can have Torah. And what it does is it says something also about God and their conception of God. Because this is way before modern, it's like anticipating our own concerns. Because most of us, and I'll I'll speak for like research, you know, the data tells us that most of us don't like a parochial God. We don't like a God who only likes the Jews right? You know, what kind of God is that? He's like, he only has his home team, right? We don't, we don't like that God, right? You know, that's not a God, we have trouble with that God, right? Um, and the rabbis, even way, way, way before when they're being persecuted by the Romans, they already had this understanding that the theology of a, of a, of a God that only really cares about the Jewish people, and that Torah was only for one group of people, this was a theology that was very limited. If God was the one God of the universe... God has to care about everybody else. And if this is God's word, then why can't everybody participate in it? And the answer is, they can. And how do they prove that? Prove, in quotations, of course, on this simple little thing about the third month. That's when the rabbi introduces it. And he says, ah, and he makes this cool contemporary for them analogy between the third month and the twins, uh, uh, um, Called. Gemini. Yeah, Gemini. And uh, thing and Yaakov and Asab and Romans and us and it's like it all fits. It's it's really very beautiful. But it brings up this concept that God is a universal God. God does care about all peoples, and in some ways God's word can apply to all peoples. That's also a balance, you know. I guess you could we could have become an evangelical people from that, you know, if we wanted to from that, but we, we modified our that that we, God loves all people, but not everybody has to live up to the Torah. Because in the end, Esau didn't come running and saying, hey, I want it too. You know, in the end, 
we did, right? Um, but that's okay, you know, because at any point, people can still access God, and God actually does care about the people, even if they don't completely accept the Torah. Does that make some sense to you? Yeah. Do you see that? I'm not imagining that, right? Okay. Um, comments or questions about that source? I think it's a cool source. Um, let's look at number two. Um, it's another midrash. What did you say? Listen, I have a lot of guilt because I said the wrong one. This one is like the guilty one over here. Um, Alright, who wants to read on Mechilta Darabi Ishmael? Who is my wilderness person? Was that you, Larry? Yeah. Go for it. The Torah was given in public, openly in a free place. For had the Torah been given in the, in the land of Israel, the Israelites could have said to the nations of the world, You have no share in it. But now that it was given in the wilderness, publicly and openly in a place that is free for all, everyone wishing to accept it could come and accept it. All right. So we don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but I just wanted you to see an example of how the rabbis, they see the wilderness, boom, boom, wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. According to the rabbis in this text, why is it important that the Torah, it's emphasized that the Torah is given in the wilderness? Why? Because it doesn't belong to any nation. Because the wilderness doesn't belong to anybody in particular. Because if it was given in the territory of X, then it might have been seen as belonging to that, that, that group of people. Um, but A, God doesn't belong to any particular people, and the Torah doesn't belong to any particular people. Again, a little bit flying in the face of that the Torah is for the Jews. Right, or B'nai Israel, I'm being an Afghanistan colonist. They weren't Jews then. They were B'nai Israel. They were children of Israel. Um, but you get, hopefully you get what I'm saying if I slip again. So... The idea is, is that the wilderness is open to all, free to all. Everyone wishing to accept it could come and accept it. There were no boundaries saying, hey guys, you can't come here, this isn't your territory. If, theoretically, of course, because who is going to come to Mount Sinai at that moment? But theoretically, anybody could have gathered around Mount Sinai on that, on that day, right? On that particular day. And anybody could have come and become part of the covenant if they were willing to say... You know the words that it says in here. Yes, we're we're in. We'll do it. Yeah. So, but isn't so? Isn't these sources really pointing to a modern day understanding of conversion? That we're not talking about other peoples at a time when we were B'nai Israel. But if somebody wants to accept Torah and become part of the people, it's open. It's there. It's it's available to all. I think that's true. Um. Any comments or questions? All right, I want to turn to the Brad Artson source, which is number seven, which on your thing, so I have different pagination than you guys, so if you'll just pardon me as... Seventeen. Seventeen? Yeah. All right. Page 17. Fabulous. Thank you, Larry. Um, That's the only little awkward thing about this curriculum is that... It's different pagination for me and you. Um, Okay, page 17... Brad Artson speaking about jumping from like, you know, second or third century Midrash to 21st century. He's alive and kicking. You know, he's, uh, he's not that old, you know. He's, uh, he lives, he's, a, he's yeah, he's, a, he's the dean of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies at American Jewish University, or the, yeah, in uh, California, in L.A. Um, and um, really dynamic, smart guy. Um, some of you have probably heard him speak. Some of you have 
probably read some of his stuff, and for those who haven't, it's like a good name to note. You know, if you're looking for a Parsha commentary, you can Google him and that Parsha. It would probably be interesting. Um, I just did a, a seminar today for some people on inclusion. He also has a child with special needs, and he's written a lot of beautiful things about that as well. So he's a good person to kind of get to know. So I want to introduce you to him in the realm of the chosenness thing, right? And whether the Torah is uniquely for the Jews and what does it mean um, to be chosen. Does anybody want to read out loud uh, little Brad Artson? And I might stop you or pause you or not. Anyone willing to read? Come on. All right, Simon, please. Thank you. The textual summit of the book of Exodus is the encounter between God and the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. Here God and the Jews meet and exchange promises of loyalty and love. Here God and the people embrace the Ten Commandments, the first articulation of our sacred mutual grid, our covenant. All right, so this first paragraph, just to understand, he's like building it up, right? It's he's really heavy, right? This is like beautiful. This is important. This is a big deal, right? He's really making, and it is. And he's trying to really build it with dramatic language. Go ahead. Immediately preceding this momentous event, God speaks to Moses, contextualizing the ensuing revelation. For the first time, God clearly articulates the notion of the Jews and the chosen people. Indeed, all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a nation of priests and a holy nation. Remember that line that we, we read? Okay, that's a pretty big deal. He gives them, you're going to be mine and a nation of priests and a holy nation. All right. This one sentence indicates the tension inherent in the concept of chosen people. How can the God of the universe choose just one people? If God is truly omniscient, isn't the restriction of God's choice to one particular people an act of xenophobic idolatry? Doesn't God love everybody equally? The impetus behind these questions has caused some observant Jews to announce any claim to cho- chosenness. They argue that chosenness is an arrogant claim that denigrates the rest of humanity. So pause for a moment. This is my this is his much more dramatic and articulate articulation of what I said before, which is, you know, we moderns we don't like this idea of the God of just the Jews sometimes. And this is a much more philosophical way of, of putting it, especially when he says, Isn't the restriction of God's choice to one particular people an act of xenophobic idolatry? What does he mean by that phrase? The whole point in the Torah is the switch from idolatry, which is very much, I'm the idol or, that represents the God of this place, this neighborhood sometimes even, this village, this one aspect, right? And we, the whole point of uh, one God is that God is way beyond that. There's, you know, the Midrash about smashing the idols. You know, Abraham says, he's like, oh, what happened here? He's like, I don't know, they had a big fight. All the idols had a big fight. And the guy, his uncle says to him, what do you mean they're idols? And he says, exactly. Right? Right, exactly. You worship these things, yet you can't believe that they had a fight, right? Because they're just idols. They're just rock. But th- this is the whole point. So now you're saying that this great universal God, well, he only cares about you, right? So that doesn't, doesn't match. It doesn't make any sense. So how do we deal with the idea that God is saying the Jewish people are chosen that, to be mine, chosen for the Torah, chosen as a holy nation? What, is this, what does this all mean in the context of the one universal God. All right? Is, is that appraisal the only way to understand this central biblical claim? After all, the Bible itself presents this assertion that the contextual underpinning for the Ten Commandments and for all of the profound teachings that follow doesn't deny the context result in uprooting the values and heroic figures of the biblical tradition. He's laying on the objections really thick. Keep going. Rather than rejecting such a pivotal idea, 
we would do well to try to understand it in a way that is consistent with both the divinity of all humanity and of the uniqueness of the Jews. Viewed in that light, we must quickly echo the words of the Bible, the chosenness of the Jews is consistent with the assertion that God loves and cares for each human being. We are all precious. So Rabbi Artson is trying to have his cake and eat it too. Right? He's saying, look, chosenness is in there. So it's, it's a value. It's truth. Um, at the same time, it's also true that God cares about each and every human being. So both have to be true. So we're going to have to come up with an understanding of this so that both are true. Because he's not willing to say we're not chosen, and he's not willing to say God only cares about Jews. So he's saying there's going to be an explanation I'm going to propose to you that keeps both of those values together and creates a dialogue between them. And this is how he does it. Keep going. But chosenness implies a uniqueness, a particular purpose. The statement I was chosen today is incomplete unless I specify what it is I was chosen for. Similarly, Jewish chosenness is a sentence fragment. It is grammatically and theologically incomplete. This is how smart he is, right? And isn't he a good writer? For those of you who appreciate good writing, that is good writing, okay? Because he, he, he does this beautiful thing where he says, Jewish chosenness is a sentence fragment. What a great line. It is grammatically, which is like technical word, and theologically incomplete. He parallels the two. It's really, really smart. And he's basically saying that saying that we are chosen begs the question of chosen for what? We are not chosen with a capital C in all aspects of everythingness. We are chosen for something. It's a fragment. And we have to fill in the end of the sentence. And refilling in the end of the sentence will help him navigate between the two truth statements that he sees in the Torah. You with me so far? Questions, comments? All right, keep going, son. What completes the chosenness of the Jews is the assertion that Jews were and are chosen to embody the life and values of the Torah and rabbinic tradition. So what are we chosen for? To embody the life and values of the Torah. Right, that's what we're chosen for. How does he understand it? Keep going. By living a life centered on mitzvot and by constantly growing as Jews, we choose to be chosen. We allow the Brit to live by the way we conduct our lives. As with any love relationships, both partners have the power to affirm or to rupture that relationship of their own free will. The idea of Brit places that enormous responsibility in our hands, no less than in those of God. In the words of the Mechotah, the ancient rabbinic commentary to Exodus, the phrase, and you shall be mine, means you shall be turned to me and be occupied with the words of the Torah. God doesn't love Jews better, God loves us differently. Okay, the other brilliant move that he makes, which you may or may not pick up on, is in the, the same narrative that we were just reading, that includes this language about us being chosen, is also the language of the Brits and the Covenant and the If. And he combines the two and he says, hey, what we were chosen for is this particular deal, right? We were chosen for this relationship with God. God engaged us in this covenantal relationship. We were chosen for this. And by the way, we can mess it up, right? So chosenness doesn't imply like easy street, and chosenness doesn't imply like we've got the only ticket to God. It implies that we have made a relationship with God in a particular type of way that A, we can screw up, right? And B, it doesn't necessarily negate that there might be other paths that God creates with other folks. Um, it's our, cho the chosenness is we were chosen for this covenant using this Torah as the document 
that explains our covenant and the mitzvot that we have to follow um, and that we have a responsibility for upholding it, otherwise we could rupture it. Um, why don't we finish the last paragraph and then I'll have you think if you want to, to comment on it, whether you like it, you don't like it, what's the problems, what's the advantages, go ahead. By immersing ourselves in the study and practice of Torah, we Jews renew our unique relationship with God. By living lives centered on God and mitzvot, we justify the claim not of being God's only love, but of being God's first. And in building communities of holiness and love, we assist our non-Jewish neighbors in cultivating their love relationship with God as well, joining hands together to build a world that is just, compassionate, and worthy of God. All right. What do you think of this? You don't buy it. You like it. Renee loves this. <laughs> do you want to say any more about why, or you just want to... Love it, which is fine. <laughs> love is love, awesome. Love Unconditional love. No. Um, because, right, I couldn't live with the concept that God only cares about Jews. Right. However, this does explain that what we've been chosen for is a responsibility. And that makes sense to me. I think that's how we're supposed to live our lives. That's great. Mary, you said you loved it too. Do you want to? Do you want to tell me a little bit more? Well, I love it because I'm a convert, and to live in a world that would say that all of my Christian family is, you know, God doesn't love them or whatever, which would be what they would kind of say um, about themselves, but <laughs> um, doesn't, you know, kind of makes drop, you know, drew me more to this because it it is inclusive and so. Great. I'm not completely blind. Tell me more. I, I'm not. I, it's it's what I'm trying to say. I don't know how important it is. Or put this way, he says here we're not the only ones, but we're the first. If we weren't the first, it wouldn't upset me. It wouldn't make me feel that our heritage or our way of life or all of what it is to be Jewish and Judaism is diminished. And it's a little uncomfortable for me when people read the mind of God as mm -hmm. to what God's motivations mm -hmm. were or are. It's reasonable to speculate. It's fine to have a conversation. I'm not trying to say there's something wrong with it. But it's hard for me to, to I have to take it with a grand song. So just for my help and kind of sinking my teeth into your comments, because I got a lot of them, what would you say, how would you articulate your main, no, no, I'm serious. Well, I mean, I understand what you're saying about um, that it's, uh, I also sometimes am uncomfortable, and a lot of our fundamentalists out there, they're the ones who think that they can read God's mind, right? And that's a really, it's a scary, problematic. Um, so I, I very much understand what you're saying about that part. In terms of your objection to his analysis here, can you restate, like, summarize, like, what, 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 what is about, can you apply what you said to what he said? Do you know what I'm saying? What about what he said is either reading the mind of God or, or, or presenting it in a, in a way that makes you not buy it? I think, I think um, his logic is sound. I, I don't, there's nothing illogical or incoherent about his point. I think my response is, um, I'm, I'm being a little glib, so Please. what? So what? Uh -huh. You know, I'm not really terribly, I, 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 I don't know what God was thinking, then or now. 
and I don't want to pretend to do so. And whether he chose us and we're the chosen or the only chosen or one of many chosen or the first or the third or the tenth, it's um, the fact that we chose actively to me is the, the critical okay. factor. Got it. And so that really helped me because I think what you're saying, tell me if I'm wrong, is, is that you would rather see the emphasis be on the, the Israelites choosing of the Torah and not spend time speculating on why or how God chose us or what the context of how God chose us. Precisely. Is that correct? Precisely. Great. So that, that's, a, that's a lovely um, uh, change of perspective. It's like changing, tuning the camera. You're, on, you're, you're focused on the wrong... The camera's on the wrong person here. You know, like, switch it back. The key is, is about the Israelites and how they responded to the Torah, not to try to pretend that we understand why or how God chose us. Okay, good. Right. Well, there's Midrash, and I don't know where it is. Maybe it's not in this text, but well, the Midrash is, God went around asking the nations, here's my Torah, do you want it? Yeah. And the first nation says, well, yeah. what's in it? Thou shalt not murder. Oh, no, that's not for us. And he goes to the next nation. What's in it? Thou shalt not covet. Forget it. And he went to the Jews and says, do you want my Torah? He says, okay, we'll do it. Right. Yeah, so there are traditions that... So on the one hand, that Midrash is helpful for those who would like to say, hey, you know, God did offer the Torah around, or God would have been happy to have the Torah go somewhere else. And if people like that, then... Unfortunately, that midrash also is a little derogatory to those other nations because they're like, oh, murder? Oh, we love murdering, so we're not thinking of it. It's a very, like, it doesn't paint the nations as, like, the same enlightened people as the Jews who automatically understand that it's God, and they're like, of course, whatever's in there is good. Um, but, yes, so there is this idea out there that, there that it could have gone to other nations, and that fits in a little. Uh, yes, go ahead, Ron. Um, just touching a little bit on what Jay said, but I, I've only thought of this just from listening here, but um, some of the directions that God is giving um, almost sounds a little bit like a, like a blueprint. And when you have a blueprint, I think of, and I can't put myself in God's place, but it's almost as if God wanted a nation to give the Torah to, and he was kind of waiting, and he was kind of going over, you know, this is how I want it to work, this is how I want it to be, and we finally found this Nation, so he's giving his list of instructions as if it was sort of predetermined or, or pre-thought of and, and predestined. And, and I, uh, you know, it, it is almost like uh, uh, it, it boggles my mind to even think about it. But it's, it's almost like God wanted us as much as we perhaps needed. God wanted us to want this as much as perhaps we needed <coughs> to have this. Beautiful. Look, you have a Hasidic soul. I mean, there's... Um... There's a lot of talk in Hasidism, which is kind of the more contemporary kind of inheritors of the Kabbalistic tradition, which is all about the dual relationship that God really needs us just as much as we need him. They really take the breeds and this covenant idea that it's a, like a real partnership very, very seriously, and the Kabbalists very literally, um, and that what we do on earth literally affects the nature of God. Um, and that's why God is also so invested in how we behave and who we are because we actually change the nature of God by our, our actions. Doing mitzvot are obviously positive changes and not doing mitzvot and ignoring the covenant are actually negative changes. Um, so I, I appreciate that perspective um, on the text. Ron, I'm going to give you the last uh, 
word, and then I want to share something with you. Bow's story, you know, from Genesis, God creates the world and creates Adam and Eve and puts them in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't work out. Man is evil, you know. And mankind of vows, and then we have Noah and the flood and the destroying everyone. Man is evil. And God finally figures out, well, better give them some written text so they can follow my rules here and maybe they have <laughs> right you know I would say that if you're going to look at this this Torah from Rad Arts and Rabbi Artson um, and you're going to um, for the moment allow the camera to be on God because the rabbis um, do a mixture like some are more like UJ and they want to focus on the people, there's plenty of the Midrashim that focus on. And he goes there a little bit. He talks about that it's, we have to choose, that we're chosen to choose, you know, that whole idea. Um, but there are a lot of like, why were we chosen, right? Why were we picked out? And there is a speculation whether we're comfortable with it or not. And it's interesting how the speculation goes. There's obviously the ones who are like, we're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're the greatest, you know, a lot of triumphalism that. We are not immune to that in the Jewish tradition. But there's an interesting amount of commentary that goes with the two Midrashim that we read earlier, right? About the Torah could be open to everyone who was given in the wilderness that wasn't owned by just the Jewish people, right? Could be accessible. And other things like God purposely chose us. Why? Because we're great? No. Because we were the lowliest nation on earth at the time. We were the downtrodden, the most modest slave nation and that was to give a symbol to the world that God doesn't care how big your army is or how much wealth you have or whatever all God cares is whether you're walking with God in the world right that's what God cares about so we were only chosen actually because we were like the the paradigm in the in the world at the time of the most beat up <laughs> nation in the world and so God God saved us and everybody then could see the God in it because of course the Israelites didn't save themselves everybody knows that Right, so the, the God's power in the universe was very obvious. There's lots of. There, I just want you to know that there's a lot of uh, uh, stuff behind that. What's at stake here, though, is an understanding, right, of how God relates to the world in general, right, um, and how we see ourselves as Jews in relation to other people. And both the rabbis who are living in Roman times, and we today, we recognize that we live amongst other people. We also recognize that we're not the majority, right? Um, and so we have to develop a relationship with our tradition that allows us to have an interaction with the rest of the world and how we present ourselves. And we could, and some of us have chosen to, or some of our brothers and sisters have chosen to say, you know, we're going to separate ourselves from the world as much as possible and maintain an internal narrative about ourselves that one day it'll be seen that we are, we are the real deal, and when Mashiach comes, it'll be clear. And some have chosen different paths of how to relate to the rest of the world. Artson is following a tradition. I wanted you to see the connection between a 21st century scholar and a 2nd century text of saying, no, 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 no. We, we, we are following God's model and relating to the world in compassion and love and understanding that God's relationship is with all of us. So my parting, because according to my, let's see, what do I have? I have exactly one minute. I want you to turn to page 21. I'm just going to leave you with the text. No commentary. You can, you're going to have to study it on your own if you want to know more. I just like the text. It's from the Tanfuma, 4th century. 
It says, so 20, commentary 10, page 21, Come and see how the voice made itself manifest among the Israelites to each according to his capacity. The elderly, the young men, the adolescents, the children, the babies, and the women would each hear it, right, God's voice. Each hear God according to their capacity. Even Moshe heard it according to his capacity. As it says, Moshe would speak and God would reply to him with a voice. Not just reply to him, but with a voice is the key. The voice, so so on and so forth, that Moshe would be able to tolerate. Said Rabbi Yossi Bar Kanina, if you are astounded by this matter, learn from the case of the manna, which would descend from the Israelites in an individual fashion fitting for each. The young men would eat it as bread, the elderly as wafers and honey, the nursing babies as milk from their mother's breast. Said Rabbi Yossi Bar Hanina, Now if the manna, which is one type, was transformed into many types for the individual purposes of each, then the emanating voice, which has within it a range of intensities, certainly varied for each individual according to his capacity so that they do not get hurt. And how do we know that the voice differentiated into many voices? For it says in Shemot, and all the people saw the voices. Voices. So I want you to dwell on this idea of what does it mean, according to this Midrash, that God spoke each according to their capacity. What does it mean that God spoke in many voices um, to the people? You know, separating out the elders. You know, this they did it demographically a little bit, but you could do it any way you want. And this analogy to the mana, that it also was to the capacity and the needs of each and every person. And how does that affect your understanding of what it means for God to speak to the people and give, give Torah to a community of varied people? So I'll leave you with that. If you would like to study you know, next week's stuff, so that begins on page 29. Section 2 is Asera Dibro, the Ten Commandments. You know, um, in this book, I'm not sure exactly how far it goes, but um, let's just see, 50-something. So it's 55, I think. So 55, 56. So as much as it, if you want to, you're welcome to read the uh, various sources in preparation for next week. You don't have to, totally. I said that at the beginning. You do not have to at all. I assume that you won't. Um, and, and just the way I teach, I'm going to assume that, you know, you didn't.